One would hope, hope, that every person in this country has access to equitable health care, but we know that that is not the case. We would expect that health outcomes are the same for everyone, but that too is not a reality. Yeah, the numbers say it all, really. In the United States, African Americans live to an average age of 74.8, white Americans 78.8, Hispanics 81.9, and Asians in America live to be 85.6 on average. So why is that? And what can be done to improve health outcomes in our black communities? Hi, everyone. I'm Pete Kenworthy. And I'm Macy Jepson, and this is the Science of Health. When it comes to the major killers in our country, we're talking heart disease, cancer, diabetes. African Americans have the highest incident rate and the worst outcomes. And you'll notice I said African Americans, not minorities. And why is that? Joining us today is Dr. Greg Hall, primary care physician at University Hospitals in Cleveland, also the founder of the National Institute for African American Health and an author. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So I mentioned you're an author because of your book, Patient-Centered Clinical Care for African Americans. You've done extensive research on this topic. Not only do African Americans have the shortest lifespan, they are also the sickest. How did we get here? Well, it's a long story, and thanks very much for bringing this topic to the front. Um, it's a it's a long, sordid story, right? It's a, it's funny. It goes back, you know, time when the first slaves came to America, a mere twelve years after the first English settlers, right? And so our history here goes back a long time, and then, and you know, the bias and the disadvantage, and you know, experimentation. And all those things have sort of impacted our community, the black community, uh, in a negative way in terms of health. So when, you ha- when you're disadvantaged in terms of economics, like poverty, increased poverty leads to poor health outcomes. You know, um, decreased education leads to poor health outcomes. And then just being disadvantaged socially um, in a number of, of um, settings leads to, leads to bad health outcomes. You talked about slavery, and I think that that is an obvious, no doubt. But throughout the years, it became redlining. It became segregation. Can we talk a little more about how that impacts health? Sure. Yeah. So, and people will say, you know, why are we why are we still talking about slavery, right? What what is why, what is that? that was that's been gone for you know since Lincoln died, right? Um, so, but but it though, that history helps inform our current situation. Right, that that helps inform you know where we are today, and so, um, you know, the, when slavery ended, you know, they 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 had the, like the Jim Crow laws, right? That 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 there were laws in place that said separate but equal, you know, so the schools could be separate but but equal, and the, the neighborhoods could be separate but equal, and all these things, and you know, the waiting rooms and and so on, healthcare could be separate but equal, but but unfortunately, that separate would never never equal to equal, right? And so. It wasn't until the 1960s, after I was born, that they really said, you know, we, you can't have um, separate but equal. And so those redlining that occurred, you know, through most of the 19th century, um, you know, was related to, you know, keeping people out of certain neighborhoods, you know, having, having black people in, in identified black neighborhoods and, and white people. There were laws that kept you from building a building and saying, you know, you got to say who's going to live in this building. You can't just randomly build a building like you can now and say who it's for. Back then, you had to identify this is a house that we're building for a white person, and we're, or this is a house we're building for a black person. And so, and then the loans, you know, is a, how, how's a bank loan going to go for that house, right? 
or a business. If you're opening a business in a black neighborhood, you couldn't get the loans to do that. You couldn't empower that. So all those redlining laws that were existing, you know, made black neighborhoods, right? They made the suburbs, you know, when they were establishing the suburbs, they were established for whites, right? They were not established for blacks. Excuse me, in the inner city slums were were supposed to be for people that were poor, people that were people of color, you know, Hispanic Latinos as well, um, African Americans. And so that all set up neighborhoods that had increased poverty, um, had had poor education, poorer schools. They had disenfranchisement. They had, um, you know, businesses, if there were there, they were disadvantaged um, and they had to charge higher prices. They had to deal with increased crime, right? And so all these things were sort of stacked against communities of color, and, and those were in place, you know, by law, right? And so one of the things we talked about is, you know, is, is racism a public health, you know, issue? That's the whole thing that goes all, all across the country. And so, but if laws, you know, put in place things that disadvantaged people, then the, you, you'd have to have laws that, that would go against that, right? And you know we don't, we're a we're a country of laws. You know we're 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 a nation of laws, right? So we're supposed to follow the law. So you follow the law, and then you become extra disadvantaged. And then there's outcomes related to that. You know how do you how do you get past that? So that's why we're still talking about it. We we mentioned you know generational le- uh, wealth. I grew up in the inner city of Cleveland. My father's house essentially worthless. You know I mean it, you know after after being there in Glenville, you know. His house was, was, was nothing, you know, whereas if, if it was in the suburbs, it might have been a $100,000 or $200,000 thing that, that could have led. We could have helped pay for my, my son's you know, college or, or bought their first home if they, if they got a job. And so that, that advantage that people got when they inherited their grandparents' stuff when they passed on, most African Americans don't have that. Right, so that's just a little bit of a step up. That you a little less student loans, a little less owing on your house because you put a bigger down payment on the house, and a little less this and that, and those things, you know, add up. So, no, I mean, no, nobody's arguing with, with with what you just explained. What wasn't included there is how that impacts health, right? How, how does that? How does? How do all of those things impact negatively? the health of black communities. Yeah, and I get what you're saying, um, Pete. And I, you know, what's funny is when you say no one's arguing with that, there are people arguing with okay. that. You know, there are. Fair enough. Uh, they're not every, they're not, everyone, they're not, please, get over that, right? <laughs> there are people that say that. And so, but it should be no one arguing with it, but because that's what happened. But there are. And so what happens with health, I, I think about it as, you know, people with a higher education have better health. Right, so people with a graduate degree or doctorate degree have better health than people with just a bachelor's degree. We have better health than people with just a high school diploma. We have better health than people with a GED that have a better health than people who don't have a GED. Right, so as you get more education, you get better health. And you can say the smoking data related to that that goes, you know, people who smoke, it's high with the low education and it's low with higher education, and those cardiovascular outcomes, the stroke cancer, all those things are related. As you, as you bring up an educated community, those things go down, right? And so in a sense that if we're not educating our kids, then, and we're not giving them access, and that's just, that's just related to that. It still doesn't address bias and all the other disadvantages that we have out here. 
but it's just a part of a component of that. So as we can educate our community, we recognize what happened and say, this is what happened. That's why we're here. It was public policy that did this. It may have to be public policy to get us out of it, right? So it, once we acknowledge that, then we can move forward. But if we're, it's just this big mess and, and you know, African-Americans are feeling, you know, the majority of populations, they don't care for us. They don't like us. They don't want us around. They don't want us in our neighborhoods. They don't want us in our schools. And it, I'll just be a rogue, you know what I mean? And then, so then in turn, you're getting less education, you're getting less degrees, you're getting less opportunity, you're making less money. And then, you know, so it's just like a big mess, right? And so as a community, as, as a United States community or American community, we have to somehow come together, recognize what happened, and then try to move forward. Dr. Hall, I'm going to get this phrase wrong, but there's, there is a phrase for the after effects of a lifetime of racism, because that also cuts lifespan for black people. And furthermore, let's talk about the stress that comes with living in that environment. I mean, studies show it literally decreases lifespan. That's right. And so what happens is the stress of being oppressed, and they've, they've shown this like when you oppress rats, right? You just antagonize them and, you know, you don't feed them on the same schedule and you just you just irritate them, right? Those rats don't live as long as rats that you feed on schedule and, and do what. And so, so a lifetime of stress can cause inflammation, right? And that inflammation has all sorts of things. You know, inflammation, increased cortisol, that increased cortisol can cause you to gain weight. So we have increased obesity. We have increased diabetes. We have all sorts of hormone um, issues that, that occur due to just chronic oppression. You know, wherever you go, you're disadvantaged, you're taken, you know, taken for granted. And th that stress overall can, can cause poor outcomes, right? But, and that's, that's been proven as well. But I think that, that you can get lost in all the things that contribute to poor outcomes in African Americans. You know, and, and if you're looking for one clear answer, you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna get one. But, but I, I just think that you have to, you have to address education. So that's improving the schools. People said, well, how do we, how do we try to get help health, health disparities? I think we're gonna have to do it with the children. Educate our children better, you know, in the schools, so that they can grow up more educated. Because we know more educated people have better health. More educated communities have less crime. You know, they, they make more money. And so all that data, if you just say, well, how, how will we make life better 30 years from now, we would, we would start with the schools, you know, and then and try to bring up a smarter, more educated community. And that means not having them live in a disadvantaged community, in which we still, you still are disadvantaging our schools. You know, we're disadvantaging schools in black communities versus schools in white communities, even within the same school system. And so how do we, you know, how do we do that in an equitable way? Because we're paying on the, we're paying on the back end. If people say, you know, we're, we're, what do you expect of your government, right? You expect them to, to be a good guardian of your funds, right, of your tax dollars. You're paying that. You expect them to spend that money in a way that, that makes you feel like they're, they're doing right by you as a taxpayer, Right, so in Ohio, if you look at the Ohio um, budget, a third of it goes to Medicaid, a big chunk of it goes to jails. Right, so you have a big, and we, we could, that's a whole other conversation about the, the percentage of African Americans in jail. 
right? So you're spending a lot of money on education and jail, on, on health care and jails, right? And unfortunately, of that 30% of the Ohio budget that goes to that, a third of that goes to African-American health, yet we're 13% of the population in Ohio. So we're disproportionately spending on health care on the back end when with advanced cancer, advanced cardiovascular disease, after a stroke, we're spending a ton of money on health care on that, on African-Americans, when we should really be smarter putting that money at the front end in prevention, putting that money in education, and so that we don't pay that on the back end, because we're all paying for health disparities, because we all pay taxes, and we're all disproportionately paying for it, and we're spending money on a, on a dysfunctional sort of system, because everyone agrees that preventing disease is better than treating advanced disease, and it's all, also very much cheaper. But we've got to get the patients through the door, and the lack of trust is an issue as well. Um, trust is the cornerstone of, of good medicine. It is, it is. And that's why when people say, um, you, know, let, you know, why doesn't the black community just pull themselves up by their bootstraps? Why don't they, why don't they go to the doctor? You know, why don't they you know, stop smoking? Why don't they eat a better diet? Why don't they exercise more? Because you know, that would lead to better health. Everyone sort of ag- agrees with that, right? But if you're in, a, in an environment, African-Americans are in an environment where you can't walk around the block many times because of crime. Right. You can't you're living near. You can't buy fresh fruits and vegetables because of food deserts in the city. And if you get fruits and vegetables, they're 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 not ideal. Right. And they don't they're not uh, at a cost that you can get them. Right. And so all those things, not being able to start a business in in a poor community because of because because investment in that is going to cost you more for insurance. It's going to cost you more for employees. It's going to cost you more to, to keep your parking lot. Uh, uh, safe, you know, all of those things disadvantage those communities. So it's a, it's sort of, you know, how do you do it? I mean, so it's like, how do you, 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 you think of health as one thing, doctors and hospitals, but if we move away from that and think of health as a community, health as, you know, how, to, if, how do we be proactive about educating people about smoking and exercise? And, you know, there's schools that don't have athletic programs, you know, that they, you know, so exercise is key. And so if the schools don't value gym, you know what I mean, just exercising, then the students aren't. And if you look at the meals that are served at schools, no one would eat that at home, right? And so we're not feeding, we're not showing the kids about fruits, vegetables. We're not serving them food that, that they can, be, you know, be you know, nourished by. And so it's, it's all just sort of a big big society problem, right? When people say it's not their problem, you're, disp- you're not paying money in the most efficient way to make, you know, the nation as healthy as it could be. Let's stick with this trust for a second. Um, there's that general broken trust in medicine by black Americans, right? And, and let, let's, let's do the, a little bit of the history, right? In the 1930s, uh, the U.S. Public Health Service and the Tuskegee Institute launched the, the study in which researchers let syphilis progress in black men without treating them for the disease that's well known and and often quoted, right? Um, what other examples are there, though? Um, and the other part of that is, are black people invited to the table for things like research? Like, wh- wh- where's the cutoff here? Yeah, I, I, and I get it. So trust is the key to a lot of the issues that we have in terms of African Americans not going to the doctor, not feeling comfortable in front of the doctor, and and some of that is just generational 
sort of earned mistrust going back to, you know, the slavery days when, um, you know, the father of gynecological surgery, J. Marion Sims, did, you know, he experimented, perfected surgical techniques on unanesthetized slave girls. And that, and that over and over, and he was a scientist, he was a researcher, he, he documented who he did the surgery on, what the surgery was, what the outcome was. And so there's no debate on whether he did that. And it was certainly not against the law to do surgical experiments on slaves. And so, but that, what does their family think about doctors and generationally? So again, the Tuskegee syphilis study, you know, not being told about what the study was, not really being told they had syphilis. You know, everyone knew but them and their wives. And then sharing that information with all the medical providers in the community so that they didn't accidentally go somewhere and get treated for syphilis after the, the treatment was out there. And it went for, you know, for 40 years. And so, again, what do those families know about that? I took care of a patient early in my career who was from that study. So his family didn't like doctors, weren't too particular about me, you know, and because, you know, because of that history. And so uh, even in the 70s, the first heart transplant in a Virginia a hospital was done on a man that fell off of a three-foot wall, you know, yardstick high, hit his head, lost consciousness, went to the hospital, and they transplanted his heart within 24 hours to another person. It was the first heart transplant. They were waiting on a heart, and he provided it. So what does his family think about doctors and hospitals? What does his neighborhood think about doctors and hospitals? What do his coworkers think about doctors and hospitals? And so all those things, when those atrocities happen, that's why African Americans don't want to donate their organs when they're in the hospital because they think you're, you're, you're speeding that up. And I, I remember thinking, well, where would you get that crazy idea? Because I didn't know about that history, right? They know about it, but everyone doesn't know about it. And so this trust, it's, it's really, if you knew all the atrocities that have been done from the medical establishment to African Americans, you wouldn't trust it either. You'd wonder about the people who do sort of blindly trust. And so we have to now, as a medical community, try to repair, regain the trust that we can get, on, on particularly for African Americans. We have to at first acknowledge it, which when I lecture about this, I tell providers, you know, you have to put it out there. I, I understand why you don't trust doctors or why you don't like doctors. I get it. I know that history, right? And then that's a point where we can kind of move forward and try to earn trust, you know, from a, from a person. But if you say, I understand why you don't trust me in here. Let's, can, we, can we go forward? Versus, I don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. That never happened. Or that was 50 years ago. You know, get out of it. You know, get past it. Get over it. You know, that's not a way to move forward and have a trusting relationship. So that's when I, when I then prescribe amlodipine for your high blood pressure. That's why you don't get it. I don't know if this guy really is in my corner or girl or, you know, this, this, this professional is trying to make me better or whether they're experimenting or what they're doing. So that, that's been a big big barrier so just even if you're in front of a doctor having them take the medicine or get the CAT scan or get the colonoscopy because there's just so much baggage related to all that history that 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 we need to be aware of and and obviously if you don't trust doctors clinicians you're not going to go see them and you're going to have worse health outcomes right I mean clear right? absolutely Makes absolutely sense. yeah so so but there's no easy way to fix that per se. And it's not an issue of, I don't trust white doctors. You, you mentioned that that, that guy's family wasn't right, too the, sure about you just because you're a doctor, right? Absolutely. I'm the doctor and they don't trust me. <laughs> I have to earn their trust as well. So, so what is that? If, you know, if, if you have generational distrust, 
is it going to take generations to to get it all back? Because that's not going anywhere. That that's still fed in the homes and communities. Like turning the Titanic, I would think. It's just... Yeah, well, it's a big it's a big problem. But when you know when you turn the Titanic, you've got the whole Titanic on the same page, right? <laughs> and, and so if you're turning, you know, a, a thousand little rowboats. That's much harder, right? And some people think they know the right way, and, and so it's, it's really it's it's even worse than turning the Titanic because we aren't on the on the same page, because everyone doesn't know the history, everyone doesn't acknowledge the history. Now we're at a point where facts aren't facts and truth isn't truth, and you know, so so it's like there's no right, there's no wrong, you know, so it, it makes it more hard to to get us on the right course because we can't. We can't seem to agree really on anything, right? And then there's and it's, it's there's this function on both sides. This is not just, you know, whites oppressing blacks. You know, their blacks are oppressing themselves in many ways by 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 just not even trusting black doctors when they see them, or not even trusting obvious things they're seeing, or not seeing that their mother and father died prematurely because they smoked, and here I am with a cigarette in my mouth. And so we have to try to say you know, we have to, as somewhere, really with establishing the nonprofit, I was like, this is a National Institute for African-American Health. It's in the name, which we need to be a trusted source of information for African-Americans across the country so that they can, because they don't trust establishments, they don't trust universities, they don't trust, um, you know, the government, the CDC is not widely trusted, you know, NIH. It's like, wow. So, so if you, you can't point to those sites, that, those, those institutions as a point of trust, where do you turn? And people are just turning to, to crazy conspiracy theories on the Internet, and we could go off another hour on conspiracy theories. So by saying, like, here's, a, here's a, a, an organization that's really dedicated to you, to your unique problems, your unique history, unique from Hispanic Latinos, unique from Asian Americans, um, and but we're and we know your problem is unique from that. It's not a minority problem. You know, minorities have a whole slew of different problems, particular to the minority group, right? And so my big thing was to say, let's let's tease out African Americans who have an entirely unique experience, and address that with a laser focus, versus just saying, you know, there's whites and there's people of color. Which brings us to, to a question that we really wanted to, to ask of you, and that is the, the value of treating black people as black people as opposed to in general, because t- what works for white people may not work for blacks. Could you explain that? Well, you know, I tell providers, if you say, you know, I don't have a racist bone in my body or, I don't, you know, I don't have any biases and I treat all my patients the same, that's the person to avoid, right? Because <laughs> if you treat everybody the same, you are you're the person that's really causing all the problems. Quiet as is kept, right? So you need to recognize that if you have an African American patient in front of you, they're more apt to distrust you as a provider, distrust your institution. They're more apt to not take the medicine you give them, to not get the MRI you order. That's just a fact, right? And so you have to spend more time gaining their trust. You have to do more small talk. You need to spend more time listening to them and what they're saying. And it may, it may take more time and more energy. You may not want to do it, but that's how you provide the best care for them. And so I say, you know, equ- equitable approach, you don't counsel 
non-smokers on stopping smoking. That's a waste of time. So if you said, I treat everyone the same, then everyone gets stop smoking, whether you smoke or not. Everyone would get this, that, and the other, right? Just like if a rape victim comes in, the, the exam related to a rape victim is different than the exam related to a mother of six who needs to pick their kids up from school, right? That, that approach is different. Everyone accepts that approach as being different. So you're just given patient-centered care, which is really you know, how my book was able to get published. It's not, let's, just do, let's just think about the patient. And then once we're thinking about the patient and what their particular needs are and then try to provide that need, you lean into that, then you, people have shown just incredibly increased success. Again, we mentioned it at the beginning. Your book is titled Patient-Centered Clinical Care for African Americans. And you've seen uh, that approach, um, giving clinical care to African Americans for them. You've seen that reverse trends, right? You've seen statistically how it changes. Can you touch on some of that? Yeah, there's a, there's a number of things. Um, recent data is showing that if a black person has a black doctor, their health outcomes are better. Infant mortality goes down for black women when they have a black woman, um, you know, gynecologist or obstetrician. And so that those rates go down just because they're able to get trust faster. I mean, they still not they may not like doctors, but they'll they, I can gain the trust faster than someone who's not like them who doesn't come from the same neighborhood. And so that has done it. Um, there are certain medications for my book. It was really clinical care. There's medications for hypertension that work better in African Americans than than in other communities. And, and we, we've known that. there For Asian Americans, there's different doses that you give for, for statins or for other medications. And so we, we already have, have applied that for years. There's different interpretations of labs um, for African Americans that are specific. And so I wrote the book really for providers of African Americans. If you have a big African American population, then I'm pulling together all the information you need to be- take best care of them. If I move to Amish country here in Ohio, I need to read about, you know, what diseases are more prevalent in the Amish. What, what do they see? What are their barriers? And, and I've read about that just as an example. You know, it's more higher heart disease, lower cancer, you know, because more beef and potatoes and whatnot. And so just taking a patient-centered approach to taking care of a community is just, it's just a natural thing. But you can't broadly paint. You know, I have some incredibly compliant, adherent, great African-American patients that do exactly what I say. I don't have to build their trust. It's wonderful, right? And I have other patients that come in. I, I'm still trying to build trust. I still haven't succeeded with them. So there's a whole bell curve of people that come in to receive care. But if the preponderance of them have X, Y, or Z, then that's what you need to focus on. The preponderance, 45%, some data shows, of African Americans don't trust doctors or hospitals. So that's half. So if, you, if you're not addressing that, if you're not acknowledging that, Early on in your encounter as a provider, you're, you're really missing the boat. It sure would help if we had more than 5.7% of our physicians being black. Yeah, absolutely. It would help instantly. That would, that would, be, a big, that would be a big difference. And, and, that's, and there's, there's all sorts of barriers. And we could talk another hour about that, the barriers to getting into college and the barriers to getting into medical school and getting out of medical school. And I, I tell you, you think getting into medical school is hard. Try getting in, then getting out. You know, and, and they're disproportionate. African Americans can't get in. Disproportionate African Americans don't graduate. So now you've got uh, an African American medical student who's done two years of medical school, who's $200,000 in debt, but can't, can't graduate, can't pass the, the test that's halfway through. The, the medical school is built in attrition. You know, 20% of their students aren't going to pass 
and a disproportionate high number of that 20% is African Americans. And they've already been weeded by, by the MCAT. They've already been weeded by the, by the college. And so it's just, it's just not it. So we're, as, a, as, as an institution, medical schools need to be deliberate about graduating their students. You know what I mean? You admit them. That's a commitment. You should be committed to graduating because you've done an incredible weeding process. So, and we're, even after African-Americans graduate and go into residency, the highest dismissal rate from residencies are all in African-Americans. And so, again, imagine you still got, now you graduate, you've got $400,000 in student loans. You go to a residency program, and because of bias and, and you know, distrust, now you're dismissed from that, and now you, you can't practice anywhere. And so all those disproportionate disadvantages, we see that go through college, through medical school, through residency, and then now you arrive at a hospital and your chairman doesn't like you because you're the only African-American. I mean, it's, 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 really, it's really a mess. And here you are, a highly successful physician, and I'm sure you have your own personal stories. Oh, oh my God, it's a, a ton of them, right? And they're, they're, it's never ending, right? It, it, it never ends. I, I was at the facility two weeks ago, and, and in, I wasn't in a lab coat, but I had a stethoscope dangling around my neck. I had a tie on, which I hate wearing ties, but I happen to have a tie on. And a man came in with the boxes and says, are you with maintenance? And I said, no. And, I, and, I, and then the nurse was like, you should have told him you were a medical director. And, you know, you're the corporate medical director. And I said, no, I can be with I, you know, I just wasn't really trying to do that. You know what I mean? But, but that takes a little chip out of your, for all the things you've done, even with a tie and a stethoscope around my neck, I can instantly be with maintenance. Hmm. You, you've talked about lots of, um, I guess, problems, for, for lack of a better way to put it. And you did talk a little bit about some of the solutions in terms of uh, government funding at the wrong end, right? You talked about how the government funds during Medicare, uh, which is uh, you know once the problems are already well down the road. Whereas if 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 you spent on prevention, a lot of these problems might be prevented. It's prevention. What are what are other solutions? And I, and I know you can't sum this up in a minute or two, <laughs> but but what are the solutions? We we've talked a lot about problems. Um, but it would be great to have some answers. And I realize some of these things could take decades, but maybe there are some simpler things or, or some things we can, we can do that change these. What are the numbers we quoted at the beginning here? That, that the, you know, African-Americans live to be 75, right? White Americans are basically 79, Hispanics 82, Asians 85. That, that's, a, that's a big gap. It's a, it is a big gap, and it doesn't explain everything. But, you know, there, there are ways that we can, if we recognize some of the differences that happen. So the, the classic uh, disparity is that breast cancer occurs more in white women, but the, the, but the mortality related to breast cancer is way higher in African-American women. So you have this, like, why does something that occurs more in one population is killing more in the other population? That's really because of not the absence of targeted research on the types of cancers that occur in African-American women. So you, all you have to do is just direct your attention to it. And so right here in Cleveland, we brought our infant mortality rate down significantly because we took a targeted approach to what was happening in black women you know, and what was their, what were their issues in terms of infant mortality? And if you can prevent that, you could just save all kinds of money. You know, a premature baby can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars at the beginning of their life, plus the chronic care issues that they continue to have. And so we took a targeted approach 
to, to infant mortality in black women, not minorities, but black women, and was able to bring it, bring it down and save all that money. What, what did you do? You, you talk about a targeted approach. I'd like to hear more about what was done. And, and, and can an approach like that work with other things other than infant Absolutely. Mortality? Well, you know, they, they doulas, having, having a, a sort of a, a, an aide or a person go with you to your appointments and help listen and help follow up. You know, so there are people that said, you know, you need to stop smoking. And so some people stop smoking when they were pregnant. Other people don't. Right. And so if you have someone, the doctor says and then walks out and I don't like him or her anyway, <laughs> you know, you're just going to I'm going to do whatever. I don't I can't see why smoking would hurt my baby. Right. But if you have someone who's coming over, has been to your house, who's in your environment and saying, you know, you really need to do this. You really can't do that. You really need to do that. What other stressors do you have? They address the stressors in in, in their spouses. They addressed the um, poverty food issues. And so they just did a wraparound approach to what were the needs of the person. What do you need? You need transportation to, to the doctor. We're going to provide that. You need, you know, to breastfeed. Let's talk about why you don't want to do that. And let's talk about, you know, uh, you know, what's best for the baby and thinking about, you know, what's about relationships. You know, people get relationship advice. If you get that from the wrong person, you're going to have a really dysfunctional relationship. And so this, this wraparound approach really was able to, 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 to have a big impact just in this, just in infant mortality. So again, if you say, what are the issues that are causing, you know, strokes in African-American men or prostate cancer and say, I'm going to turn my attention to that and we're going to find out what the problem is and then address those problems just by taking a targeted approach, you can, you can improve those outcomes. Doctor, as we wrap up, and it's going to be hard, I know, but but you're such a great communicator. I trust you. <laughs> what would be your biggest piece of advice? I'm thinking about our audience here. Your biggest piece of advice for a black person listening today, and what would be your biggest piece of advice for a physician or a caregiver and how they can turn the needle? Because it's going to take both. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that that provide uh, African American patients should know that because they assign all all the doctors with a um, you know, an NPI number, right? We have an NPI number, so we're being graded as providers on our outcomes from surgery, how how good we are at take, getting you to take your medicine, how good we are at getting you to to get screened, how long you live, you know. So all that data through an NPI number, which started maybe 10, 15 years ago is being tracked. And so if you have, if you're an African-American patient, you should know that this, this, your provider is being evaluated on their success of taking care of you. And that so their, their motivation is not so much, you know, moved by their biases or, you know, what they watch on TV, but, but in order for them to get paid the maximum amount, they need their patients individually and collectively to have better outcomes. And so that's out there. And, and really, I educate providers to let them know that's what your MPI number is doing. They're tracking your outcomes, whether you or if you order a mammogram and they don't get it, they know that. Right. And so you're no good. at it, And you may fall off of insurance plans because, you know, your outcomes with your community are not as good. And so that's being tracked. So that's a sort of a protection of 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 the, you know, to the patient. Right. That that wasn't in place in the past. And so. That's, you know, know that providers are, are, are rewarded for taking good care of you and they're punished 
for not taking good care of you individually. And so people don't really, really don't know that. And then so you can trust what they do more because of how the system is set up, not just w hoping to trust them uh, on an individual basis. Every provider you see, I got to build trust, see if I trust that person. You know, that's a lot of time and energy for the patients. That's why patients would say, if I have surgery, can't you do it, Dr. Hawes? You don't want me doing surgery, right? But they trust me. They don't want to have to try to build trust for a whole other person. Well, you don't have to because these things are in place, already in place, and so they, they really should. A surgery, surgeon is not going to do surgery on you unless they're fairly certain they're gonna, you're going to live through it and you're going to prosper after it because it'll make their numbers look bad. And do we give advice for doctor for physicians? Well, the advice for physicians is you have to take some time to to learn about the community you serve. And so when I speak, you know, at, at hospitals, grand rounds, and hospitals, and I say, raise your hand if you read anything about the research related to African American health. I raise my hand. No one raises their hand, right? And here's a hospital. I'm speaking in a hospital. Eighty-five percent African Americans, right? So that's a problem, right? If you're not, and then again. And it's, it's, you know, it's irritating to some people, but if there was a, a hospital in an 80% Asian-American community, the director of nurses would be Asian-American. The chairman of medicine would be Asian-American. Probably the vice president or the CEO would be Asian-American. But if you go to an African-American community and look at the same hospital, the, the, the director of nurses is not African-American. The chairman of medicine not African-American. So they're not at the table. And so they're not able to say, you know, kind of push some of the things that I'm saying. Let's, let's empower it. You know, African-Americans know these things, but we're not in the room when those decisions are made. So having a diverse opinion, have an opinion of someone who's like, who looks like that community, you know, leading the charge, that makes differences as well. Dr. Greg Hall, founder of the National Institute for African-American Health, also a primary care physician here at University Hospitals in Cleveland. Thank you so much for your insight today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Remember, you can find and subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Search University Hospitals or the Science of Health, depending on where you subscribe. And for more health news, advice from medical experts, and the Science of Health podcast, go to uhhospitals.org slash blog.